What's going on, guys? Our guest this week is Nicholas Hinnerson. Nicholas has his MBA in entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial studies from Stanford. In 2013, Nicholas and his partner Chris started a company called Carlipso, aiming to build Amazon for used cars. Just like Airbnb, Reddit, Stripe, and DoorDash, they went through the startup accelerator, Y Combinator, raised $10 million in venture funding in 2015, and sold the company to Carvana.com in 2017. Nicholas used to be an avid golfer playing on Germany's national team for four years. After finishing his master's degree in Germany, he worked at Bain & Company and Merrill Lynch before he moved to the U.S. in 2011. Nicholas is an avid investor in companies such as Cobley, Acquire, and Rudderstack. Him and his partner are now launching the fintech business in the auto lending space called withclutch.com. Auto loan rates are all over the map and can be as high as 29%. Through refinancing auto loans, they're saving people thousands of dollars and help them build their credit. A hundred million Americans currently own or owe 1.3 trillion and COVID pushes a lot more people into bad loans. More than 47% Americans refinance their mortgage and less than 5% refinance their auto loan. Doesn't make sense, right? So Nicholas will be talking to us about how to disrupt big industries from Stanford to selling used cars. Nicholas, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, it is absolutely my pleasure to have you. Um, I watched your talk on YouTube at Stanford, and I just wanted you to, if you could just tell our listeners just that story of you helping and collaborating, just because I love the passion and collaboration concept of having being in business. Sure, yeah. So there's actually two stories to that. Um, one is the one that I talk about at Stanford, another one that, that I think is maybe even more interesting. So at Stanford, we took a class called the Lean Launchpad, with uh, Steve Blank, who wrote the, or co-authored the Startup Owner's Manual. Um, and so the class is all about getting out of the building, talking to customers, iterating your, on your company and your value proposition. And in that case, my conviction was we, we, should, we should build a company around uh, the fashion space and fashion designers, where there, there's a lot of them, but it's really hard for them to sell their products. So you, you either are creative or you're really good at sales you rarely are good at both. And so I was interviewing my really good friend um, at the time who is a fashion designer in New York. He said, yeah, I, I build all these, like I create all these, these incredible products and people who see them, love them, fall in love, try them on and keep them. But I have a really hard time selling it to somebody else. And then selling is actually twofold. There's two problems. A, the marketing put it in front of customers. And B is producing at scale because if, if you're like have fewer low numbers, it's easy to produce. But if you have high numbers, it becomes really difficult, and you need to go into big factories, mostly abroad. And so I I thought it was I just found it really fascinating and got excited about helping her. Uh, and I only realized that after the fact. I only realized that I got pulled into this venture uh, after the fact. And that's why I'm saying it's it's the second or maybe even third story worth sharing because my before I moved to the US I started a leather accessory company with a friend of mine she's a designer it's almost the same story she's a designer always wanted to build her own purses wallets and clutches I had been traveling to India and China a lot and so I had relationships there to source these products uh, but she had she she didn't and she couldn't get started because she was like it felt like a chicken and egg problem to her and I was I was the chicken to her egg <laughs> And then lastly, and this is probably a good segue into telling the story about Carlipso. At business school, I met my future co-founder, Chris, huge car enthusiast, wanted to do something in the car space. Uh, 
knows every little detail about every car. His first car was a DeLorean, the one from Back to the Future. Oh, shoot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice. So that's the extent to which he's obsessed with cars. And he had the same, he had all these ideas, but couldn't, couldn't get going. Like he didn't know where to start. Mm. And I was the opposite, right? I was, I was like, had a, had a lot of urgency and wanted to move quickly, but I needed, needed insights, like something worth, worth exploring. Mm-hmm. And so we teamed up and it was like the perfect story of him being creative and the ideas guy and me, the, me, the executor, if that makes sense. So you didn't meet him at, in the MBA program. I met Chris. I met in the MBA program, the guy, the car, the car guy. So he does uh, have some business background. He does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, you'll, once you meet a lot of MBA students, you quickly notice that there's, there's visionaries and there's operators and doers. <laughs> and so neither of them could do it by themselves combined they become a, a really really strong and dynamic duo and so I, with hindsight now that i've known i worked with chris for seven years we're like a good example where he's creative and visionary and things high level and knows how to use data to like under um, like support his, his thesis and i'm more the guy who gets shit done <laughs> nice nice i mean i had a guest a couple of weeks ago and she's a talent manager in la and she talks about similar to what you're talking about, how a lot of these artists, a lot of these creatives, they should just focus on their craft and leave the business, leave the business issues and other things to the professionals. I mean, we all have what we're good at. And so we don't have to master all these things. And we, there's a ton of people like you who can come in and help out. Yeah. The, so, the interesting part about that industry, sorry to interrupt, is like their social media actually bridged a lot of that gap. Mm. So when, when you were an artist, back then like in order to discover it you had to go through what we now would call middleman or you had to go like to the right place be discovered and now the distribution channel for you to let other people know you exist has become very short and very 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 approachable and attainable through be it instagram or facebook youtube or linkedin even or linkedin yeah um but fundamentally if, if you actually like if you have to do something produce something hire people like if you have, if there's things that need to be done, that's where, where I, I feel like I can be helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So let's go ahead and move on to Calypso. Explain a little bit about what Calypso does for the consumer. Yeah. So we, after we graduated, everybody knew that car, Chris was a huge car enthusiast. Mm-hmm. So everybody approached Chris with one and the same question. How do I sell my car? And at first mm-hmm. we were giving advice, but we quickly found ourselves selling our classmates' cars, mostly on Craigslist. So literally detailing them, putting the listings out there, taking the calls, going on test drives. Mm-hmm. And we, we noticed that the worst part about that experience is um, twofold. A, most people don't do it a lot. So if you do it a lot, you become much, much better at it. Uh, but you just sell your car every four years or five years only. You don't sell it more often. Now, what do you mean? Uh, sorry to interrupt, but what yeah. do you mean better at it? Negotiating, uh, finding deals? Yeah, good question. I'm sorry, I should have been clear. So you wouldn't know what your car is worth. And in doubt, you would assume it's worth more. Then if you list the car too high of a price, you won't get any leads. Or if you don't take the right photos, you don't know how to appeal to buyers. If somebody comes and test drives, and wants to tell you everything that's wrong with your car, well, you don't know whether that's negotiation strategy mm-hmm. or whether or not it's really wrong. And uh, so there's a lot of unknowns. And if you don't repeat that process very often, it's just not very easy to do. Um, right. in, in our case, what we found was the hardest part was not that, that we learned quickly. The hardest part was being available for people who wanted to test drive. 
because that's where all of a sudden it became really time intensive. We had to wait for people and people either never showed up or showed up late. Some people just wanted to kick mm -hmm. the tire or test drive one of our cool cars. And so we realized that if we, if we leverage technology to, to um, avoid wasting a lot of our own time on these test drives, we would remove the biggest hassle out of selling your car. And the end result of multiple iterations was an, a device that would allow you to swipe your ID so you can have access to the keys, you can test drive the car by yourself while it's insured. And if you fall in love and you want the car, you just drive away with it and will pay electronically and transfer title electronically. So that was the wow. business we built. So the owner doesn't have to be present? Exactly. So how, okay, so now comes the question that we were having earlier of how do you know that the price is still good or the price is what its market yeah. value is? All those. So on, on cars, we can go into it specifically, but it, it usually it's the same for every asset you sell. There, but there is a market. For mm. cars, there's two markets, a retail market and a wholesale market. The wholesale market is the lower end of what you should accept. Now, that's what the dealer will pay you, who's in the business of buying cars, reconditioning them, and selling them. Mm -hmm. The retail market is what, uh, what end consumers pay for it. And so retail price on a car that you sell as a private party is lower than what the dealer can get because the dealer is an institution who provides a lot of guarantees. Mm -hmm. But once we understood this concept of these two markets, we realized, okay, in order to get the, like, the bottom, bottom end value, like the lowest somebody should accept, we would have to build a network of dealerships mm -hmm. and work with them. They would give us the prices. And um, for the retail market, we just had to understand retail transactions. So we need to be really good and technology help with that. Knowing every car that sold for what price it was listed, estimating for what it was sold, backing out from databases, what it really sold for. Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up building was a lot of technology. We didn't know we were building it at the time, but we realized later on. And if we now fast forward, like in, during Curlipsa times, we, we raised $10 million, wanted to build a big car company. What we ended up selling was a software company, believe it or not. Hmm. Carvana was mostly interested not in the cars we were selling, but in the software we had built that powered the cars we were selling. Plus, plus all the market research and all the customer information, right? The, well, our understanding of customer behavior helped a lot. Yeah. But, yeah. but they really, and that's just intangible. Like you, can, you can't put a price on it. Hmm. That's why the, the deal was structured. So Chris, my co-founder, I would stay on for, I think, around three years and then work for Carvana because there was a lot of institutional knowledge in our heads, which, which Carvana hmm. wanted us to, to leverage through us. And so fast forward, Chris, Chris ended up being responsible for the front-end web experience, so Carvana.com, the search pages, the vehicle detail pages. And I was, wow. I was starting, I started out as a, a product manager making the, the trade in a better experience mm. and then quickly started what's now called the Celto Carvana business. Mm -hmm. That's the business where Carvana buys cars from consumers. And that yeah. grew from basically zero to in July, Carvana bought more cars from consumers and they sold to Carvana, to consumers. Yeah. Wow. That grew really rapidly. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, you don't have to tell me, but the, the business model of, of before Carvana, how, how much cut did you take from each transaction? If you, if you can tell me, if no, you want to tell me. No, we, let's see, the average car we were selling was $20,000 more or less. Okay. On the car, we made $1,000. And then usually you make more money on the, on the backend products, like financing, referrals, insurance products, protection oh. products. Oh, so you guys also did the financing <laughs> similar to with clutch 
exactly. And so this is actually where the insight for the new business comes came from. Mm-hmm. We noticed that 80% of the people who buy a car with a loan asked us for a loan. So they didn't mm-hmm. come in and already had the money. They came in and asking us, do you have a loan? Mm-hmm. I need to finance my car. Can you help me with that? And that was weird because people didn't trust us on the cars and wanted to haggle for the price of the car. But then they asked us for financial products. Right. Wait, this happens all the time. Huh. And, and across the whole nation. And dealers are not motivated, motivated or incentivized to give, give consumers a really good deal on the loan. Their yeah. strong incentive is to give them a loan that pays them the highest referral fee. Yep. Yep. And so that's step one. So people, the second they drive off the lot, they can already refinance their car in theory and save money because the loan they got was suboptimal. Interesting. Because yeah. it was before it was, I guess, there was less miles on it? Or no, it was... it's, no, it's just because the, the dealer marked up the interest rate of the loan. So if, if you come in and the dealer tells you, congratulations, you're approved for 9%. Mm-hmm. In reality, you don't know, but you probably were approved for 65 or 7%. And the dealer tells you, no, it's nine, congratulations. And the wow. difference goes almost entirely to the dealership. Very interesting. And you're saying that if you do the test drive, the, the interest rate would be even lower? No, it's, it's just if you leave the lot, if you buy a car, leave the lot, oh, okay. and you negotiate on the price of the car, but not on the loan, yeah. likely you ended up in a suboptimal loan. And then if you refinance, you could save money immediately. Mm, okay, okay. It's got nothing to do with yeah. the car. It's just because you bought the car and got the loan through the dealership. You're right. And so, I, yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they even they they asked me if I knew, but some deal or dealerships do not want you to pay in cash, right? Because you're saying they get a kickback from recommending exactly the highest it. interest yeah, that's rates. That's why the dealers don't like cash because they make money on it. The only uh, way they don't make money is if you either come with cash or a pre-approved loan. Right, right. If you come with a pre-approved loan, the dealer will t- still, even if you come with cash, the dealer will still tell you, you should finance this. You can use the <laughs> money and invest in the stock market, make, make a lot of money. In the meantime, wow. the lowest interest rates you can get are on car loans, so you better get a car loan through us. Oh, man, yeah, because the guy that I was talking to was thinking that it was a negotiation tactic. Oh, I have cash. I can you know, get no, a lower no, price. No, the opposite is a negotiation strategy. Right. They say, oh, Frick this guy, right? You, you should so, literally go to the dealer, tell them, I need to get a loan through you. Mm-hmm. And you choose the bank. I will need to have to get the most for my trade and have to pay the least for the new car. And then the dealer says, okay, make all the money on the loan. And then you leave and then you refinance the loan and then you have the best deal possible. So it's the there opposite. You go. There you go. Okay. So um, now, now let's talk about the funding for that. So explain to people what Y Combinator is. Okay. So the first round of funding was actually not Y Combinator. It was, came from professors and lecturers. So when we started the business, we asked a bunch of our professors for advice on how to get started. And do you know somebody in the car space? Here's what we try to do. Hmm. And then each of these conversations ended with, so you thank you so much for the help um, would you be interested in getting involved and then this is just something that professors in stanford do like if it makes sense to some extent then they're like they're supporting startups because like we're just following their footsteps they've been in our position a couple of years ago right um, and so the initial money came from the professors and lectures we raised 1.2 million dollars from professors and lecturers and lectures yeah and then a few friends and family but mostly mostly lecturers and because they're all entrepreneurs themselves they came back to the school teach to to give back basically wow 
And then YC, Y Combinator is a startup accelerated. It's also jokingly called uh, Course 6 Summer Camp. Course 6 is the software engineering or computer science class in, in, in MIT. Oh, in okay. MIT. And so there you have all these geniuses that, that are really good at building product. They just need a little bit of help getting out of the building um, and selling that product. Just like we talked about earlier, like my designer friend, mm-hmm. like she's an artist, but she needs help selling. Same is true for the software engineers from, from MIT. They're, they're geniuses um, mm-hmm. and build really good product. But the first step of building a company is actually leaving the building, talking to customers, presenting products or ideas, right. and then getting feedback. And so YC helps you with that. And then who, who is what? It's, it's a private organization of, uh, from MIT? No, it, it, it's funny enough, not related to MIC. It's a, a startup accelerator uh, headquartered in Mountain View uh, oh, okay. in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Okay, close to you. Okay. So do, when, you, when you, obviously you got a lot of advice from these lecturers. Did you have any background in website building or app building? Uh, so I, I studied computer science and finance in undergrad. Okay. And while playing on the national team, like when, when I was at home, I, for fun, coded a little bit and built websites for like small, medium-sized companies. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not a software, de- software developer, but I build breaks and is not stable and I wouldn't recommend anyone to build it, build, build their application or let me build their application. Okay. Enough to know what's possible. And so Got you, it. yesterday I saw this really interesting TED talk about um, thinking outside of the box and how this, the, this author or the, the speaker says, well, the box is really, you have like legal ramification, you have product, you have technology, you have operations. And so if you don't know what's possible, you can't think outside of the box. Um, huh. and so I thought that was a really interesting analogy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. If you don't know what's possible, you can't think outside of the box. Yeah. I like that. So, I mean, you, you answered about why you went to the car space because of Chris. Um, so did you end up falling in love with the car space by default? I, I fell in love with the problem we are solving. And it, it's a good question. I'll take it somewhere else in a second. But um, I never liked cars particularly. And then they became like problems. So it became my job. And so I wanted to not mm-hmm. talk about cars. Um, I started learning more and more about the industry and the, the way it's structured and felt like, oh, there's a lot of people, a lot of meat that a mm-hmm. lot of people are biting on and the customer's paying for all of that. Um, the one that I think is most uh, upsetting is the financing. Because we, as we said earlier, the dealership pockets a little bit of money if you get a loan through them. But the other thing that happens is if, if you don't have perfect, perfect credit, your interest rate can be as high as 29%. Mm-hmm. So it can be really high. And if you make your payments, your credit score improves because you, you just demonstrated you're more mm-hmm. credit worthy, but, but your rate stays the same. So if you get a mm-hmm. loan at, say, let's say 15%, that means your credit score is around 600 um, and now you make payments, 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 and you're really diligent and you're very disciplined. And then a year later, your credit score is 700. You're still stuck at 15%, mm-hmm. although now you should qualify for 3 or 4 or 5%. And mm-hmm. the, the, the way to solve that problem is through refinancing. The problem with refinancing is people don't know it's possible or the, the providers who offer it are all off, old school, offline, and nobody creates a digital experience. Mm. So, I mean, when do you recommend people start looking into refinancing? Yeah, good question. Refinancing, there's no cost to checking. Mm. Like, as a consumer, it doesn't require a hard credit pulse, so your credit won't be impacted. 
um, I recommend checking all the time. Like when, when, mm -hmm. when you haven't checked before, if you haven't checked, just check, go to the website with clutch.com, enter your details and we'll tell you what you would qualify for today. Um, there's no cost for you. For us, that means we can either refinance immediately or tell you, Hey, right now is not a good time. You still need to build more credit, improve your credit, make more payments. Um, so why don't we check in with you in three months, six months, nine, nine months from now, every monthly payment helps you. So make sure you make them in full and on time. And we can then ping you and tell you just like credit karma does. Hey, now is a good time to act okay. on X, Y, or Z. We can tell you when the good time to act in your refinance would have come. Okay. So let's, let's kind of get into the, into the business of that. So do you, are you financing it through a third party? Are you creating relationships with other banks? How are you getting the funding to refinance these customers? Yeah, really good question. So the, the, the lenders, the companies that do automotive lending are very, very good at it. Mm -hmm. And so in order to become good at it, you need to be good at two, two, two things. A, you need to do really good underwriting. That means you need to under, understand the customer very well and his credit score and the car. Number one. Number two, if your cost of capital is really low, that means if the money that you use to lend it to the customer, you get it from a really cheap source you're always advantaged versus other people. And so credit unions, for example, are a great example. They, mm -hmm. they have the deposits of the members. They're nonprofits. They don't need to make a lot of profit on these auto loans. So obviously they have the lowest cost of capital and it's a big business. So they know it really well. It'd be silly of us to try to compete with them. Mm -hmm. we, we, we're more of a market maker where we create transparency in the market and help credit unions get new customers, new members. Mm. And it doesn't right now, the best, if you started an auto automotive lender, you would try to talk to customers. And then on day two, you'd be like, this doesn't work. You would then start talking to dealerships and tell them, Hey, can, can I give you a high referral fee if you give me auto loans? Mm. And this is basically the root cause of the problem. In, in, okay. in our case, we do it the other way around. We first find the people who want to refinance, get their profile and then send them to the bank that fits best their credit profile. And then they bid or you it's, personally just find it's so you, it is bidding is a strong word. What really happens is these, <laughs> these credit unions or banks, they have rate sheets or credit models. Okay. If you have really good credit and you work with a credit union, it's basically a sheet that tells you 740 and 50, uh, 60 months, that's the rate. And it's, it's a table. You can really read it out. You know exactly what your rate would be under which circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, Capital One, for example, is almost fully digital. So you can just ping one of their APIs and they'll return something immediately. So it's all through software. Okay. Um, and then the, the user experience is an interesting one because at the dealership, when you're talking to the financing manager, you sit down and, the and he does something on his computer. You never see his computer screen. Mm -hmm. Because on the screen, he can see all the loans available to you. Yeah, think of a table. Like, it looks like a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And he sorts by the column referral fee uh, uh. and then picks the bank that has the highest referral fee versus if you, you as a consumer, if you saw that table, you would sort it by interest rate and you would pick, <laughs> pick the lowest interest rate. Right, right. But since you as a consumer, you don't see it. You, you, you don't know what you're missing out on. And so in our case, we want to flip the screen mm -hmm. like figuratively and literally. We'll, we'll show right. you what all the lenders are offering and then you can pick the cheapest one. Are we allowed as a consumer to go to those finance managers and say, can I see that finance spreadsheet? You can ask. 
Good luck. Have you ever tried asking something like that? No, I was on the other side. I was the dealer, oh. not, not telling you or tempted to not tell you. And then I realized I don't like that friction. Like I, I'm right. not selling you the best product. I'm selling you the best product for me. And so yeah. I really didn't like that friction. And, and, and that's where the insight come, came from. Oh, so, that's so shady. That's that, very that shady. It happens every day. They need yeah. to make the money somehow. They'll argue. <laughs> that's true. Oh my gosh. Okay. So what is the key to success in a tech startup? I think the key to success in tech as much as in any other startup is really understanding the customer overall. So you need to understand what is the product that people want. Mm. Oftentimes founders actually, there's a fun saying first time founders are obsessed with product. So what they're building and they want to make it perfect. Mm. Um, second time founders are more obsessed around distribution. How do I get whatever product I have to customers? And you'll see in order to build really, really, really big businesses, like you need to figure out how to reach customers without having to pay for them. Mm. If you have to pay like Facebook or Google or any TV station, like the second there's more competition around the same product, your margin will go to zero, your marketing costs will go up and Google and Facebook make all the money. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So what, what, is, what are you suggesting then? I mean... I know it's not clear cut, but what door to door is it? Well, what is, is believe it or not, door to door was how DoorDash kickstarted their distribution. So, so Airbnb as well, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so sometimes you have to hustle. That's the other thing that YC teaches: do things that don't scale. As an early stage founder, because you need to learn. The, mm-hmm. the only way to learn is to do things that don't scale. Put yourself in touch. Force yourself to talk to customers. Present something and learn from them. They'll tell you they don't mm-hmm. like what you built. But if you're curious enough, they'll tell you what they would pay for if you build it for them. Right, right. I mean, that, that's exactly, I mean, I've heard the story so many times of Airbnb and their story of going to these customers, personally going to the customers and personally yeah. asking them, how can we make this better? How can we do a 10-star experience, right, to make it close to possible as a five-star yeah. experience? Yeah. So, perfect. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who have these tech ideas, Right, they, but they don't have the tech background. They don't have the money. Do you have any suggestions or advice on how you can start a tech company without a tech background? Yeah, so I would argue, like you, you wouldn't start Google or you wouldn't start a rocket company if you don't have a tech background. You'll just, it's, it'll, you won't be successful with that. Hmm. But what we're doing, for example, is we're creating a market. We're just connecting people and moving data around. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of no-code tools to build prototypes. So you could use um, WordPress for a blog. You could use Wix or Webflow. So there's a lot of tools that allow you, or even for apps, you'll find similar products that, that are like building in PowerPoint. You just drag mm-hmm. and drop and you connect the dots a little bit. And you don't need a lot of technology to, to use these tools to put something out there. And the second something is out there, you, you will feel, oh, people want this, or you learn something. And then, then once you have something or you know you have an insight of something that people want and would be willing to pay for, raising your money will be much easier. Mm-hmm. So right. first you need to figure out your value proposition and you can do that without knowing a lot of tech. Even if you have these smoking doors where you put something in front of people and you just want to know whether or not they click on it. Mm-hmm. Once you yeah. have a conviction, you can raise money. And then if you have money, you can hire the right people. To, to accelerate the business, right? I guess exactly. that, makes, that makes total sense. So, okay, before we get into the master's round, yeah. um, I do want to ask you one last question. What is the goal 
with with clutch i mean are you trying to get back with carvana are you trying to get sold what is the goal here with, with clutch? No, yeah so we through our exit to carvana and then the way the share price developed we got extremely lucky um so financially we got so lucky that we, we can now be fearless kids can go to college i don't i won't be starving anytime soon um and so congratulations now, thank you yeah better lucky than smart <laughs> <laughs> yeah right um and so knowing that and having this really good plan b the, the mission is is fully focused on helping our customers like we we want to okay. create an experience that helps customers save money on their auto loans there's 100 million auto loans out there arguably the fact that some people pay up to 29 percent that's just like that's that's like robbery like people are paying so much yeah. money and if they continue making payments they're just they could take that same money and put in their savings account or invest in the stock market and be wealthy, but in, instead they're not. I think it's a main contributor to the inequality or income inequality and wealth gap we're seeing. And so doing, helping, doing my part to address it and making a little dent there would feel really good. Perfect. Beautiful. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into our master's round right after a word sure. from our sponsors. <laughs> Breaking news, guys. I think I have found the most comfortable, arm-hugging, chest-defining, loose around the abdomen, God knows I need that, shirt on the market. I'm talking about Fresh Clean Tees. It is a 60-40 cotton poly blend, so it doesn't shrink over time. Their shirts come in a ton of combos and colors, and they don't show any logos on the tee. They have an earth tone pack, bold pack, foundation pack, and we love to see it, an all-American pack. We're all busy, and whether you're looking for a gift or buying for yourself, Fresh Clean Tees are the go-to for a fashionable, affordable, simple option. Click the link in the show notes to get 15% off your order every time. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for sharing all your back-end information with us about Carvana deals and Calypso, or Carlipso and uh, with Clutch. And so let's go ahead and get into our master's round where I fire rapid 10 questions at you. They're super quick, um, just to get to know you a little bit better. So yeah. an interesting fact about your background that has shaped who you are today. It's, you already said it, but I think in context of expressions, I used to play golf on the national team. So mm -hmm. we played on the team for four years in Germany and then continued to play for my club. And we won the German championships a couple of times. And the reason I think it's worth mentioning is because golf teaches you to be like to work really hard, practice really hard, but keep keep your calm. Like it's mm. primarily mental. Once you have your technology, your your technique right, um, it's all about becoming really good and in, in, in your head because it's like a very mental game. And so I think that game of golf actually helped me become successful in in, in the area of entrepreneurship. You know, I can kind of sense that you play golf. Like if if, if I didn't know that fact at all, I. I would know that you play golf. There's a sense of composure that you have okay. that seems like that guy's a golf player. Um, what, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> it is, absolutely, 100%. What habit or skill has made you different than the rest? Uh, I don't know where it came from, but I, I think there's two things. I have a lot of urgency to get things done. So if you tell me, hey, how about X, Y, Z? I'm like, how about we just try it right now? Nice. And then, and then not only do I have this urgency to take action, um, I'm also very quick at things that I'm doing. Like if, if, if you tell me we need to spin up a blog and write a few articles, like if it makes sense, I understand why I'd be very quick at doing it. I'm not saying that it would be top-notch quality. It would be good enough. 
Okay. But I, I take a lot of action. And the reason that matters is because in an early stage startup, you need to throw a lot of things in the wall to see what sticks. Mm. And the more you can throw and the yeah, the more you can throw, the higher the chances that something will stick. And I think that, that, that helps me in the early stages of the company. Less time, less time. I mean, so many entrepreneurs, right, focus on the preparation. Like you're talking about the preparation for the product. It's, it's the so easy product. to overthink it. Yeah. yeah. What lesson took you the longest to learn? Um, I think also what I said earlier, product is important. But what really matters in consumer businesses is distribution. How do we get your product in front of a lot of customers? Mm. <laughs> and so it's so easy and tempting to say, well, we just do marketing. Somebody will buy it. That's mm -hmm. not how it works. People won't buy it. There's too much going on. Your product is likely not differentiated enough. So that the way to really beat the competition is through unique and creative distribution channels. It could mm. be dominating SEO, search engine optimization, be like the most relevant content on SEO and Google. Could be through partnerships where you have a unique and unfair angle. It could be anything, but um, it, it really is about distribution to build big companies. Was there a book or influential figure that you recommend our listeners take a closer look into? There's, there's a book that I really like. It's called Never Split the Difference. Um, I'm not sure to what extent it helps me on a day-to-day -day basis, but I know that I think about it a lot. It's written by this FBI hostage negotiator, believe it or not, hmm. who, who shared the lessons they had learned over the many, many years and decades uh, negotiating hostage like at ransom. And he explained how all of that is super applicable in business. Um, really, really good book. Highly recommend it. Maybe you can put in the show notes. Yeah, cool. definitely. I'm actually going to go get it right now. Yes, um, yeah. After, after I ask these questions to all my guests, I mean, why not? I get, why not get the book? I mean, yeah. you recommend it. So I get it right away. Anyway, um, <laughs> greatest investment under a hundred dollars other than that book. Lot. You'll laugh a lot. Um, I don't, I think it was a less than a hundred by far, but, um, I was born and raised in Germany. And then, and I think H5, I found out that there is different currencies. So there is mm -hmm. Deutschmark and then there's others in Europe, obviously at the time. And, and there was dollars. And I realized that in order to have $1, I needed two Deutschmarks. Okay. And so I'm like, hmm. so what do you actually want? You don't want Deutschmarks, you want dollars. Okay. Uh, without telling my parents uh, on my way home from school, I stopped at a lot of retail branches of banks walked in there age five and told the, the teller, Hey, I want to buy dollars. And so first two or three banks told me, yeah, we don't sell dollars. The fourth one said, I mean, you can exchange it. Uh, the, the lady called the boss. She's like, yeah, what do you want? I said, I have, I have 12 Deutsche marks or 11. How many dollars can I buy? And it's like, that's probably five. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I'll buy $5. So I had these dollars in my pocket. Fast forward, probably five years later, we were stuck on a family trip. Um, my mom ran out of money to make a phone call, but we had to, we had just missed our plane, our flight. And so she's like hysteric, hysteric and asked for a way to communicate. I'm like, I have $5 here, the same $5 <laughs> from back then. She's like, okay, I'll give you 50 back if I can borrow it. <laughs> and so it took me five years and annualized. You can do the math how much it was, but yeah, I made $50 out of a five by just having it in my pocket. Wow. And I mean, that's, that's just the normal um, concept of investing, right? The, the whole patience, hold it and yeah. sell it when it's high, exactly. when the demand is high. <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite quote? High. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the, the big donors of Stanford Business School is um, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Mm -hmm. 
and he's an entrepreneur at heart and he he has the saying that i like a lot there's nothing wrong with failing uh for as long as you don't fail the last time you try wow. and so i thought that was really thoughtful he just says you'll fail all your life and in order to be successful you just need to go through a lot of failure but just make sure you fail long enough so you have time to figure something out yeah that doesn't fail oh that's good I- I'm actually surprised I haven't heard that one. That's good. What advice do you have for someone who just got out of college? Oh, wow, that's a good one. I think, let's see, there's, there's the two traditional routes, professional routes. You could take banking and consulting. Like this is what a lot of my peers looked into. And I'm sure if you go graduate from a good school, this is what's like most tempting because they pay most. Mm. Um, arguably, and you can see it, and actually you can see it very well in the recent stock price developments. Um, you should find your way into technology. And that could be as a content writer, that could be in marketing, that could be as a software developer, could be uh, as a BD guy, as a sales guy. So there's many, many roles in these companies. I think it's just important for recent college grads to know that in order to have a really, really great career, it helps a lot to be at the right company at the right time. Mm. For example, in the Bay Area, if you talk to candidates and you want to hire somebody and he tells you I was early at Google, early at Uber, early at Airbnb, early at Dropbox, you name it. Just the association with these companies and knowing that this person was there early, Mm -hmm. you probably will give them much more credit for what they've done than they deserve, but it helps them a lot in their career. You just, Mm. in tech, you need to try to be in a rocket ship. And um, yeah, my advice would be to find your way into tech. So, I mean, not all of us obviously are in the Bay. So, I mean, how do we get associated with tech remotely? Is there any suggestions there? Yeah, so I don't think tech is only in the Bay. I think tech is being more and more distributed across the U.S. every Mm -hmm. day, especially now that people are allowed to work remotely. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is a good number. In San Francisco, rents used to be the highest in the country, are down by 20% because people are leaving the city. Mm -hmm. Employers say, well, you clearly don't need to live here, um, so feel free to move go mm. wherever you want to be and wherever, you, wherever you're happy and then you work remotely because that's proven to work really well. Mm. And so as a result, all these companies are really, really open to entertaining a remote role. Uh, you just need to apply. And if, if people want help or need help, feel free to like look me up on LinkedIn. More than happy to make introductions. Very, very nice of you. Very interesting. Well, of course. So, I mean, you said down 20%. So it's only what, $5,000 now for a studio? So <laughs> I think it's less, but uh, it's going the right direction. Let's put it that way. My apartment is less than I, I'm in the same apartment I've been for seven years. I'm paying less than what I paint uh, seven years ago. Okay, which which I guess is is good, good for me, considering. Yeah. yeah. Um, what does an extraordinary life look like to you? I think having the opportunity to build something big is uh, is you're lucky. I think that's extraordinary. When, when I graduated from, from business school, one of the last lectures, one of the professors who happened to be a former entrepreneur himself said, said this, and I thought it was really interesting. You guys, you can have any consulting or banking job you want. So consider that your plan B, your, your, safe, like it's, your plan B is such a safe path and your safety net is so soft, you won't fall very deep. In that unique position, you need to think about plan A differently. You need to think about a plan A where you have extraordinary impact, where you run big risk, and we have a lot of leverage. And so, because if it doesn't work out, you can always take plan B. Um, and so 
just having the opportunity and now I feel like I have it the second time after I graduated from business school. And now that we sold a company, I feel like I have it again, the opportunity to, to have a safety net and run big risks. Uh, I think that's pretty extraordinary and I'm, I'm enjoying a lot. Man, that is, that's pretty good. I'm actually typing this because I think that this is really powerful. I mean, I, I feel that, that that's something that all people Every entering college, entrepreneurship yeah, I mean, the plan B is is always going to be that that safety risk. I mean, especially when you just got out of college. I mean, what's the point of living not knowing if you could have taken exactly, those huge yeah. risks? Exactly. Plan Bs will, will always be there. Who is the most exceptional person that you've met and why? <laughs> um, I, I have to say this person must be Andy Ratcliffe for me. Andy Ratcliffe is, um, was at Stanford for undergrad started in VC, venture capital, started benchmark capital later on, which became the biggest investor in Uber and Snapchat, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, he then became a founder himself, started Wealthfront, is now founder and CEO of Wealthfront. He is the lecturer who I sat down with in July or August 2013 after we graduated, wow. and who I asked for advice, what, what should I do with my life? We ended up talking about selling cars for 45 minutes. And then he said, I need to leave, but it uh, sounds like you should be selling cars. And if you want to make this a business, here's $50,000 to get started. Wow. So, so he's an investor in your... in. He, he was the one to kick it off. Like wow. He was the one that's like, no, you have, yeah, you should start a business and here's money. Wow. So did you kind of use that as leverage for the other professors and lecturers? Well, the first thing we did was ask him. Well, first thing I did was freak out. Second thing was <laughs> I called Chris, my co-founder, and told him that we have a problem. Andy wants to invest. And he couldn't believe it. And third thing we then did, asked him if we can use his name. And he's like, sure. Wow. Knowing that if we can tell other people, and directly was invested, other people would tip in. Right. As a lever. I mean, yeah. you got a big name like that backing you. Yeah. Lastly, Nicholas, what are you grateful for? Um, these days, I think the one thing everybody should be grateful for is being healthy and safe and sane. Um, and so I'm, there's a lot of things I'm grateful for today. I think just being able to work on what I love and do what I want, being healthy and, and, and not having lost anybody during these terrible times, uh, I think is, is reason enough to be grateful. Perfect. Okay, Nicholas. Well, that is going to be a wrap, but I'll give you one last opportunity to let people know what you're working on and where they can get in contact with you. Cool. Yeah. So get in contact with me over LinkedIn, ideally. Uh, maybe you can put a link for my name in the show notes. So you can find me. Love to get feedback. Love to hear what people are building, what they're up to. If you want help, don't be, don't be a stranger. Feel free to reach out. And then the business that we just started is called Clutch. The address is withclutch.com. It's a digital platform to refinance your auto loan and uh, save you thousands of dollars. Perfect. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks for having me.